Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There's always something interesting going on in the national park system. Last week, we gave you a story about how bison really are ecological engineers on the landscape of Yellowstone National Park. We also let you know about upcoming Christmas bird counts at Hot Springs and Bryce Canyon National Parks and reported on movement in the United States Senate of legislation to provide as much as $6.5 billion for the National Park Service to use specifically on backlog maintenance work in the parks. You can find those and other stories on National Parks and Protected Areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show... We visit with John Garter, the Senior Director of Budget and Appropriations for the National Parks Conservation Association, to get his thoughts on whether that maintenance backlog legislation will gain passage. We also visit with Becky Lomax, author of Moon USA National Parks, to discuss the state of the maintenance backlog out in the parks. And we share our thoughts on a spaceport proposed to be built just west of Cumberland Island National Seashore in Georgia. It was just about a year ago that Congress, mired in a lame duck session, failed to take final action on legislation designed to cut deeply into the roughly $12 billion maintenance backlog facing the National Park Service. The legislation, called the Restore Our Parks Act, called for as much as $6.5 billion to be made available specifically for dealing with the maintenance backlog in the national park system. Come forward a year, and while similar legislation has resurfaced in Congress and gained passage from the responsible committees in both House and Senate, the prospects of the measure passing this year seem dim. It was just last week that the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee sent the Senate's version of the legislation to the floor. But with the holidays coming, the impeachment investigation in the House, and the calendar running out of days for congressional action, what are the odds that the legislation will indeed gain passage and be sent to the president for his signature. To explore that question, we've invited John Garter, the Senior Director of Budget and Appropriations for the National Parks Conservation Association, to join us today and read the tea leaves. Welcome to The Traveler, John. Thanks for having me, Kurt. So I guess it was very good news um, that the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee passed the legislation last week. It was fantastic news. We were delighted with that it was taken up, of course, um, with the overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, it was just a great vote. Only um, five senators who opposed it, certainly 15 on both sides of the aisle that supported it. Uh, a lot of great remarks from uh, Chairman Murkowski, which we took to be a really good sign. She spoke uh, eloquently about um, the problems of the deferred maintenance backlog, the importance of addressing it, the limitations of appropriations to uh, address the problem and the need for a one-time fix uh, that would uh, address basically a little more than half of the backlog right now, as well as the importance of figuring out a longer-term solution. And then she spoke about the importance of moving this bill on a bipartisan basis, getting it to the floor and getting it to the president, which was um, really uh, gave us a lot of hope. 
Now, on, on one hand, um, 15 votes, obviously, a lot of bipartisan support there in the Senate committee. And yet there were five senators who couldn't get behind this bill. Any any idea why that was? I, for the most part, I really can't say, and I would encourage you to ask those Senate offices. Actually, it would be great for them to hear from you, Kurt. But um, I will say in the case of uh, Senator Lee, he was not comfortable with the idea of dedicating funding to this cause. He wanted uh, some offsets beyond uh, the current revenue source for the bill, which is from uh, energy and mineral royalties. Um, Again, as for the others, we're trying to find out the answer to that good question. So, John, you mentioned Senator Lee, and and that's uh, uh, Senator Lee of Utah. Who are the the four other senators who who voted against the measure? Sure, sure. So it was Senator Barrasso of Wyoming, uh, Senator Risch of Idaho, Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, and Senator Hyde Smith of Mississippi, all Republicans. And and did they all share the same concern, the, the funding source for the measure? It's not clear to us right now, and we're looking to find out the answer to that, that very question. Uh, I can say that for Senator Cassidy, it, it has to do with revenue sharing and uh, the desire by members of the Louisiana delegation to get uh, additional money for the state from uh, revenue that comes from drilling uh, on federal waters on the, on the uh, outer continental shelf, uh, but that they want for the state. So that's where Senator Cassidy is coming from. Um, I can't speak for the others, I'm afraid, but we do look forward to finding that out. Okay. And as I understand it, the, the proposed funding um, that would fuel this uh, legislation to pay down some of the maintenance backlog in the parks, that would come from federal energy royalty revenues? That's right. So uh, a, a, a similar funding source is provided for a great program, the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That bill passed through committee as well. These two bills are kind of moving in tandem to get dedicated funding. That's just offshore drilling revenue. The Restore Our Parks Act has offshore drilling revenue as well as onshore, uh, including renewables. So it is a more diverse energy portfolio. So it's a portion of the royalties that come in from those energy receipts after prior obligations are already met. So it's miscellaneous receipts, essentially money that would otherwise go to the Treasury. A portion of it is taken and put into this backlog. Do you know offhand um, how much surplus revenues there are after those prior receipts are taken care of? I don't have those numbers on hand, Kurt, but I will say the bill is designed so that essentially there are no, the funds that are provided are limited to what comes in so that we have to basically bring in what is predicted in order for the fund to get its full amount, which is up to $1.3 billion annually. But the projections are based on what we've seen coming in in the past. There's still plenty of money after all the other obligations are met to provide for this fund over five years. So that's not a concern. There would have to be some drastic, unexpected change in terms of what we're bringing in. Now, up in Bozeman, Montana, at the Property and Environment Research Center, Sean Reagan, a research fellow there, questions whether the measure can gain full Senate and House passage because of that funding mechanism. He thinks that there's going to be too much 
opposition to, to tapping those energy royalty revenues to, to fund both the Land and Water Conservation Fund and the Restore Our Parks legislation. Do you think he's got a point? Uh, yes and no. We knew that uh, the, the biggest challenge that we would face uh, when we, and certainly working with our champions in Congress, embarked on this effort would be the need for uh, an offset that is a way of paying for it. Now, we just discussed a revenue source, but according to the rules of the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, the bill scores. That is, technically speaking, it costs money because it's that energy revenue that would otherwise be going to the Treasury, like I said. So it's diverting money that would otherwise be going to the Treasury, therefore it costs money. Uh, That is a challenge. Uh, According to the congressional rules, you have to either find an offset to pay for something like this or waive the budget rules. Now, since those rules were enacted, Congress has demonstrated a number of times that when it's a priority, they can waive those rules. Also for priorities, they have found offsets. Uh, The hope of our champions and us has been that we will make such a compelling case and demonstrate that this is not a problem that can uh, go on indefinitely before things break down irreparably and facilities start closing, and that starts to impact the visiting experience and local economies, and Congress will recognize it as a priority. And we're continuing to work towards that. It is uh, a challenge that we're facing, but no, I would disagree with Perk that that will uh, be a deal killer for the bill. And I think uh, the fact that we've seen uh, a lot of uh, Republicans who are uh, tend to be fiscal conservatives who are getting on board with this demonstrates that uh, that there is momentum. And uh, certainly it will be an obstacle, but but we don't feel, nor do our congressional champions feel, that this will be a deal killer. And we do have a year to get this done. Uh, you know, you talked in your introduction about how the, the effort didn't make it through last year. What's important to recognize is that was the third bill, really. There was, there was one bill coming out that the administration didn't support, and so that wasn't moving. And then another bill came out that the administration supported, but the revenue source was kind of problematic. Uh, And so that bill wasn't going to do it. And then all of the champions of those two bills got together and put together the Restore Parks Act. By that time, we had gotten through a lot of the Congress and there was a lot of competition. Uh, So, you know, at this point, we have a year left. Yes, we have elections. You mentioned a number of other factors that are considerations, but uh, there is a lot of momentum and there are a lot of conversations going on at the leadership level in the House. So, we definitely are helpful. All right. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll be right back with John Garter from the National Parks Conservation Association. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. 
Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So, John, let me let me make sure I understand this correctly. At the end of the year, this legislation doesn't necessarily die. It can be carried over into the new new year, 2020. That's right. We're still in the 116th Congress come January. So this will be the end of the first session. And then uh, and certainly it's not going to go to the floor in the remainder of this calendar year. No one expects that. But then we'll resume with the second session and uh, there will be momentum and we'll continue to build on that. So we will have until, you know, next November or December, whenever Congress leaves. It depends on a number of factors. Certainly it's an election year, but but we'll have at least three quarters of a year to get this done. Okay. Now, we've been saying for most of this year that the, the maintenance backlog is roughly $12 billion. And I know each year the, the Park Service um, comes up with a new number. Have you any inklings of, of what the um, the most recent backlog figure is? I don't. And we're certainly curious to see it. Uh, there have been increased appropriations and funding has been increased through the transportation bill as well, which covers the uh, transportation half of the deferred maintenance backlog. Those revenue sources have been increasing, but some facilities have been falling into greater disrepair, and there are a lot of variables that go into that estimate. So it would be, you know, completely prognosticating. But uh, I will say that, yeah, hopefully that number goes down. But if if it does, it's not going to be by a great deal. And and uh, you know, again, Chairman Murkowski acknowledged that current revenue sources just are not going to be enough to address this. Now, each year while the, the Park Service is able to pay down some of the maintenance backlog, you you have other bills accruing to it. No, didn't, didn't, wasn't there once a figure that uh, the backlog grows by somewhere between 600 and $800 million a year? That sounds right. Those numbers are harder to calculate now because what's been going on is that the Park Service, they've been really fine-tuning uh, a very complicated matrix and system that they have for uh, tracking projects, for um, tracking uh, what the what the the needs are, uh, and figuring out what priorities are. And so, it's it's a bit difficult for us to put our finger on at the moment because of the the shifts in the in those measurements. But we certainly we can say without a doubt that they are. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars short of what they need, which is why the bill provides up to $1.3 billion annually over five years. And importantly, uh, they are given more than those five years to spend that money, which allows them to do the work they need to do to be very careful, to uh, make sure they're prioritizing the projects correctly, that they are lining up the various things that have to be lined up, the contractors, the procurement, the uh, Environmental Review, National Historic Preservation Act, a lot goes into these really big projects. So the estimate from the Congressional Budget Office is that actually most of the money would be spent in those at years beyond five years. So we could expect that those investments would be happening on top of current funding sources over at least a decade. 
Yeah, no, you mentioned uh, how long some of these projects take. I mean, a good example is Scotty's Castle out at Death Valley National Park that was uh, damaged a few years back by uh, torrential flooding. Um, And they had to go through all those, uh, not just NEPA reviews, but historic preservation and whatnot. And those take a lot of time. and, And sometimes that time leads to cost increases. It, it's true, and that's something that uh, not everyone really understands when they see the price tag for some of these projects. But it's really important to understand that this gets at really what makes our national parks so special is that these are some irreplaceable and some of the most uh, significant and inspiring uh, places and uh, assets in the park system, you know, places of tremendous historic significance, the historic fabric of which is not something that you want to take lightly. And so you have to rebuild with uh, materials that are uh, historically accurate. Um, the environmental reviews are important because you have a lot of sensitive ecosystems uh, where these uh, facilities are. So these things have to be done carefully so that in the process of of repairing and replacing these various facilities and infrastructure that that nothing is damaged. You know, and and you mentioned uh, historic structures, and a lot of the maintenance work that needs to be done isn't always in the public eye, and so it might be easy for for some visitors to national parks to to wonder what what all the uh, issue is all about. But um, a good example, I think, of the maintenance problems in some of these national parks can be seen up at Yellowstone National Park, where uh, a year ago... They went through a process of trying to come up with a solution to replace the Lewis River Bridge at the south end of the national park. And, uh, you know, if they couldn't get that bridge replaced, um, they would have to close the south entrance, basically. And now, um, just uh, earlier this month, um, they put out a proposal um, talking about replacing a bridge on the northern end of the park. And so, you know, the money is really needed to, to keep the infrastructure in place so the visitors can come to enjoy these places. That's right. And and you make an excellent point there. I was just in Yellowstone and uh, there was a long wait while they were uh, repairing a section of highway. There are a number of uh, sections of the Yellowstone Loop Road that they're repairing. And so you have to wait while the other cars come through. That kind of thing is very obvious to visitors that, that they're, you know, they're doing some important repairs there. And visitors do see where, uh, pavement is falling apart. They'll see boardwalks that are starting to get shabby and trails that are closed or visitor center displays or signage that's getting kind of shabby. That said, the Park Service has done a good job of making sure that things look pretty decent for the visitor. Uh, the problem with that is people are not aware of just how huge some of these projects are. Uh, that they don't think when they use the water fountain or flush the toilet, for example, that there are projects in the tens of millions of dollars, if not more, to replace old pipes underground. Uh, or when they, uh, when the lights are on, they don't think about old wiring that's underneath, or, or they just see the sheetrock on the ceiling. They don't know about what's going on with the leaky roof upstairs, and so. It is. There has been an education component, but that has been really successful. There are countless communities and businesses and local elected officials around the country, certainly hundreds of them, if not thousands, who have weighed in with Congress and said this is a problem that needs to be taken care of with dedicated funding. 
We've been talking today with John Garter, the Senior Director of Budget and Appropriations for the National Parks Conservation Association, to get an update on legislation in Congress that uh, is designed to help the National Park Service really almost cut in half the roughly $12 billion maintenance backlog across the national park system. John, thanks so much for joining us today and, and updating us on the progress, and uh, we'll definitely be watching to see how it moves on through the Congress. Thanks again for having me, Kurt, and for all your attention to our national parks. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. You've been out to the national parks this fall, this summer, maybe back in the spring. Uh, you might have noticed that there's uh, a lot of infrastructure needs out there in terms of maintenance and you might not have seen anything that needs maintenance work on it and that's part of the quandary of um, the visitation the visitors to the national parks what they see and what they don't see and you hear that 12 billion dollar figure and you're driving around Shenandoah or driving around Rocky Mountain and you're wondering where's all this huge maintenance backlog Today, we're joined by Becky Lomax, author of Moon USA National Parks, a brand new guidebook to 59 national parks in the country. Becky's been out traveling to the parks uh, this year quite a bit, and, and this fall, she's knocked off a few more, so we thought we'd bring her online to uh, discuss what she's seen out there. Hi, Becky. Welcome back to The Traveler. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, what have you seen out there in terms of maintenance? I mean, as we've discussed, um, a lot of it is kind of hidden to the the naked eye of the visitor. Yeah, it is. You know, when you're a visitor going into the park and you're driving the road, the only way you really notice if like a road is in trouble is if there's potholes <laughs> or something big on it. Um, you know, we might not understand the beneath the ground infrastructure of the road that's having the trouble. And there's actually a couple parks that just the dirt that the roads are built on creates an issue. And um, the two that come to mind that I was at this year are uh, Yellowstone is definitely one. Sure. And the, the other one is Petrified Forest. And with Yellowstone, the difficulty is <laughs> there are sections of road where they're very close to hot springs or hot features, hot underground fumaroles and 
steamers and so forth. And those things don't stay in the same place. They move. Right. So, you know, when we were in Yellowstone last winter, um, we snow coached in at Old Faithful. You get into that area and there's part of the road that's uh, an exit road that's blocked off because the road's melting because Hmm. the steam vents have moved under the road more. So, you know, with Yellowstone, they've got these crazy geothermal features that they've got to deal with um, that destroy portions of the road, they move around, and so you have to be able to accommodate that. And Petrified Forest, the other um, park that I was at this fall, or one of the parks, that one, you know, it's it's got a 26-mile road that just goes north to south through the park and that that's the road to see everything mm-hmm. and so everybody is on that road and that was uh you know definitely there were some bumps and a few <laughs> potholes and so forth you know that unfortunately i hit with the rental car Uh-oh. because well i was looking at the landscape because the landscape is so cool <laughs> and, and it was just a rental anyway <laughs> exactly but you know it's that would that road was obvious to me that it needed some work you know that's interesting because you know i've been to, to petrified forest and um, it, it's been a few years in fact <clears throat> it's almost a decade i think but i don't really remember any any potholes on the road but what i do remember is there there's really not that much infrastructure outside of that road um, of course, you've got the the inn on the north end of the park, and boy, I would I would love if if the park service would fix that up for lodging again. It is such a iconic, beautiful facility. Yes, it is amazing. I think they would have to probably build something additional, just you know, having that be the centerpiece of it. But oh, there's a few rooms in it. Yeah, <laughs> just a few. Um, but yes, it's just the inside of it, the work that Mary Coulter did with designing it and so forth. Is just, I mean, I walked around inside that thing with my mouth wide open because yeah. it was just gape-worthy. So and I, the colors and the ceiling, um, just phenomenal. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe um, Civilian Conservation Corps uh, workers painted those, didn't they? They did part of it, yeah. Um, and that was prior to, I believe it's prior to Mary Coulter coming in and redesigning it. They were the early work. And then I think she took their work and um, built on it. Okay, all right. So, yes, Yellowstone's roads are, are a mess in places, although they have been making some great strides in other places. And, of course, the, the average visitor may not notice it, but that uh, the Lewis River Bridge um, just inside the south entrance is in desperate need of being replaced. And the, the Park Service wants to replace it. All they have to do is find the money for it. And I, I noticed just the other week they put out notice that they there's a bridge on the northern end that um, goes over one of the rivers. Uh, I don't know if it's the Gardner River or the Yellowstone River that uh, they want to replace. Yeah, it's the Yellowstone River. It's the big high bridge that goes over the Yellowstone, and it's north of um, Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. Right. So, you know, when you get way up there. And it's uh, that's going to be quite a piece of work to do because it's so high. Right. But um, I believe the Lewis Bridge they've got scheduled for this summer to work on. Summer 2020. Yeah, 
to start that project. And they've been working on the fishing bridge. The, uh, they started it last year and I think they have to finish work this year on it. So they're doing pieces of it, but you know, good grief, Grand Loop Road is huge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole, whole thing needs work. Um, so it's not just one little section of it or one bridge here, or whatever. Yeah. Now you said you were back at Shenandoah, I believe. I was. Yeah. Last spring. Beautiful park. Oh, that was so cool. And I loved it being able to drive up on Skyline and then hit some trails. It was, yeah, fabulous hiking there. But we stayed in a cabin up there. And I always, you know, when I go to the um, parks, I usually camp, but that one I didn't have my camping gear. So I needed to stay in a lodge. And I always opt for whatever historic lodging is around rather mm -hmm. than um, the most modern thing that's in the park. And um, so we took some, we stayed in a historic cabin at Skyland. Uh, uh at Skyland, okay. Cause, yeah. Um, some years ago, um, I stayed in one at um, Big Meadows, and the fireplace cabin, I think it was called, because um, they had fireplaces in them, and I was really struck by how, frankly, dilapidated it was. And I, I, tar I talked to um, the facility manager there for the concessionaire, and um, they said they were on the list to restore and and i'm not sure if they ever have because i haven't i haven't been back to shenandoah in a few years and certainly haven't stayed in a cabin since that last time do you know have they been working on doing the the, the requisite restoration work for those cabins they've been working on a little bit but the one cabin that i was in at skyland needed serious work it you know it definitely had you know, in the bathroom, the floor was just all spongy. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Definite sign of huge water damage, and the doors wouldn't close, so there's some structural damage um, that the cabin needed. Uh, it was really hard to get the front door of the cabin to close and even lock. Wow. So, yeah. So, no, they've got some work to do on the historic cabins that are definitely and that's same same with like some of the historic cabins at grand teton and some of them at yellowstone um they're old cabins yeah, really yeah. old cabins and um they they just need some work to just be able to stay upright and still accommodate people <laughs> safely yeah. so yeah i know yeah. The, the the cabins at tower are just so rustic they are pretty cool because they're so rustic and um again it's been a couple of decades since i stayed in one but they had the the wood stove and you'd fire it up and you would almost bake yourself out of the cabin they kicked out so much heat yes yeah it's a, yeah. cabin's really small and the stove is actually made for a little bit bigger space but yeah yeah definitely you know and that's that's part of the problem i guess with some of these national parks where it's either a seasonal operation, and so there's not a lot of money to put back into them, or it's a year-round operation, and unless you really hike the prices way up there, I guess it's hard to, to stay on top of some of this work in terms of the, the cabins. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, because you look at um, a lot of the park features, especially the parks that are in really snowy areas. Mm-hmm you can't do that construction year round. I mean, some of it you can, if you've got 
the outer part's already done, but if you're talking about the major, you know, straightening of buildings and dealing with foundations and stuff like that, you got to do that in summer. And unfortunately, summer's the biggest time that all the visitors go. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, a lot of these are historic structures. Yes. They are owned by the American public, and yes. they should be properly preserved. And um, some parks and concessionaires get it, and they're able to do the job. I know at uh, Olympic National Park, the um, Roosevelt cabins are incredibly gorgeous. Um, the, the concessioner up there um, a decade or so back really did a beautiful job refurbishing those. Mm-hmm. And you look at um, Yellowstone at Canyon, um, the concession there, concessionaire there, you know, there wasn't much lodge in there for a while because they had to tear down the old and, and build in the new. But I know Big Meadows Lodge is such a beautiful facility and those cabins are so beautiful. It's a, it's a shame that they're not better kept. Yeah, yeah. And I think ultimately what, or at least what I as a visitor to the national parks would like to see when I go to stay there is I'd like to stay in the historic structures rather than having them get so dilapidated, we have to tear them down and start over from scratch. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's where we kind of need to get on it. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it's a it's a tough tough issue um, already. Lodging prices at at Yellowstone are, are are sky high, so to speak. I mean, you're going to spend over two hundred dollars a night unless you you get a, a bedroom without the the bathroom. You got to go down the hall. And you know, I I mention this frequently. I'm in you know Utah, just five and a half hour drive from Yellowstone. And so for me, it's not a once in a lifetime trip. It might be once or twice a year trip. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and so that, that sticker shock is always there in my face. I mean, we went kayaking in Yellowstone this past summer and some of the room rates were just exorbitant. And yet somebody who's coming across the country or across the world for um, their one and only visit to Yellowstone, you know, maybe 230 $240 a night is, is, just part of their vacation expense. But I think there's a lot of people who would like to visit these places a lot more often if the pricing wasn't so high. Yeah. And that's why, you know, part of the reason why I opt for camping, because it is a cheaper way to go. And for me, you know, when I go to the campgrounds, some of them I can see, you know, the restrooms need to be updated. Sometimes there's, you know, three toilet stalls and one doesn't work and and it's not that it just doesn't work that day it's like out of commission for this year two two years sometimes so you know there's there's some of those campground facilities that need to be fixed too that would allow people to um, actually be able to have a little bit better campground experience. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so funny is the whole proposal about what putting Wi-Fi in the parks and, and food trucks in the campgrounds and things like that. And it's like, uh, you know, that's not the primary need. The primary need is those restrooms in the campgrounds need to be fixed and the tent pads that are theoretically designed to, um, you know, protect the environment around the campsite so tents don't smash down everything. Mm-hmm. And if they're done right, they drain. Well, a lot of those are so old now that they're, they've just got these concave <laughs> 
what do you call them? Lake holes in the yeah. middle of the tent pads. So it rains and there's a lake there and that doesn't work for tenters at all. No, no. I, I've seen some sites um, in the backcountry of Dinosaur National Monument um, running the Yampa River and they've got, of course, their, their designated campsites. And, and I've seen some campsites where people put their tent in the same place that it's six to eight inches below ground level. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I hate to suggest this, but I really think that uh, the park service has to take a look at um, taking some of these places out of rotation for a year or two. So crews can get in there and, and properly restore them and properly build those, uh, those tent pads and whatnot and, and give the vegetation a chance to come back. Yeah, yeah, the social trails through a lot of the areas are really significant now. So we're we're talking with Becky Lomax, the author of Moon USA National Parks. Um she's been out in the parks quite a lot this year, so we thought we'd get her on the traveler once again and uh pick her brain about what she's seen out there. Now, Becky, you mentioned um Yosemite National Park and it, it's been a, a few years since I've been to Yosemite and the one time I stayed in I guess twice I stayed in Camp Curry. Um, you mentioned the restrooms, and boy, you know, from my recollection, it was just horrible. Um, there weren't enough restrooms for the the clientele, as it were, and they certainly were not kept up. I mean, have things improved? Um, somewhat, but Yosemite is the top park on the list for the do- hugest dollar amount of backlog, maintenance backlog. So there's a load of things that still need work at Yosemite. Um, the one thing I didn't stay at Curry this last year when I was there, so I can't really answer whether those restrooms have been fixed there or not, but I did notice restrooms in other areas of the park that definitely needed some attention mm-hmm. and, and things also like, um, there was this, there's this behind the museum, um, in Yosemite Valley, there is this little walk that goes through a replica uh, Native American village right. and it's really kind of cool but it was so what I want to say run down yeah and yet when I walked through it I went oh my gosh the educational value of going through this was it was great I mean I, I saw some uh, type of structures that I've never seen before mm-hmm. I mean I, I live up in the area where it was pretty much all teepees and um you know, so it was really cool to see, oh, this different group, this is what they did to yeah. make their houses and so forth. But, you know, it was hard to enjoy because it was so run down and, and beat up a little bit. So that was a little tough to see. Yeah. And then, then the roads, roads were obvious to me that some of them needed some work and trail erosion too. Um, I did, I mean, that was the prime reason I went there was to do a, a bunch of hiking and and it's spring and you know the waterfalls are gushing everywhere and in some cases you know they're running down pieces of trail on the sides and so forth so it's um there's definitely some trail work that needs to happen too yeah no the the trails get a lot of use between the uh, the hikers and the equestrian and whatnot um the last time we were there um we hiked into cathedral lake off the tyaga road and um the the trail was just pounded so much there was a uh i wouldn't say a light dusting there was a medium dusting of what my my wife termed yosemite flower 
I mean, the, the, the trail had just been pulverized by all those feet and hooves, and it was just this, this, this cloud of dust around your ankles. And I, I know um, the park, I believe, has a plan for the Tioga Road corridor that they're going to be working on, and um, they're, they're really going to try and address the parking situation there and, and hopefully be able to get some trail work done as well. Yeah. And actually, you know, you just mentioned the parking situation. Um, that was something I noticed at Saguaro this fall, too. When um, Saguaro West, it's a park in two sections. And the West section, oh, you were just there, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the West section, you know, has the dirt road loop uh-huh. through it. And, um, again, I was driving with a rental car, but the main dirt road was fine. Where I almost got myself into some trouble was when I turned off to go see one of the picnic areas. And there was so much erosion in it. I mean, these huge gully ruts through the little loop that went through the picnic area. I'm sitting, I stopped right in front of one of the gullies. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in a rental car. I'm going to wreck it driving through this. And, you know, so even some of the smaller things like that, what happens when it gets really bad is that then people quit using that picnic area or trail or whatever it is um, because you can't really navigate it. Yeah. So, the, you know, the parks are running this little borderline of, oh, my goodness, uh, <laughs> how do we get this fixed? And, oh, people won't use it if it's not, and yet they can't get it fixed. And the trailheads in, on – that section of the park too, every trailhead was so small for parking. It would fix, fit like six, seven cars max. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, um, I saw that in the, the, the Rincon district as well. Um, but I was there in the mi- middle of the week and, and there weren't that many people. Yeah. And, you know, with some of the trails, when they're shorter ones, that's, you know, people will move off. They don't stay on those trails very long, but, it would help if there were a few more parking spaces to them than that limited amount. And that's, that's the real conundrum because um, should you increase the human footprint to, to, to deal with, um, to accommodate more human visitors? And I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. You know, do you build satellite parking lots outside the park and then shuttle people in? Um, I know, I know the, the folks at Glacier are, are, Starting to dig into that problem with the going to the Sun Road. Oh, yes, because I mean, the parking in several locations on that at trailheads is just, if you're not there before eight o'clock in the morning, you don't have a space, right? And you can't go hiking, or you have to take the shuttle up to do it, and you've got to wait in a long line to get in the shuttle to be able to get up there. <laughs> so, yeah. that has, yeah, that's become a huge you know, difficulty here. And then the converse is, okay, if we make it so there's more parking, then take Logan Pass, for instance, at the top, nobody wants to see that parking lot enlarged because it'll cut into those meadows up there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it's all about is seeing those meadows. So it's, and then if you get more people on the trails, like the Hidden Lake Overlook Trail up there, you've got a boardwalk that keeps them on the lower part of the trail, but the upper part of the trail has no boardwalk. And that trail, in the last 15 years here, it has gone from like a two-person wide trail to the width of 
uh, a road, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. single lane on a road. And it's just because it doesn't have, you know, like the boardwalk below it. it, it has kind of a defined space where you're supposed to be. The upper section doesn't have that. And so it's enlarged the trail. And so you get damage to those meadows because of that. Yeah, I've noticed that in, in places like Yosemite, not, you know, going in from the trailhead where everybody is fresh and vigor and they want to walk side by side and talk and whatnot. And it, it takes about uh, three quarters of a mile or, or a mile before you, you turn those three or four lanes of trail into into one lane. Um, again, it's a, it's an issue that the Park Service has to figure out a, a way to deal with it. And, and, you know, a lot of it's education, of course. You know, one one other thing before I, I let you go, um, e-bikes. What do you what do you think about the decision on e-bikes in national parks? Well, <laughs> that's you know I am so conflicted about it. Um, I have an acquaintance whose first reaction was, "Oh my goodness, I can I can now go back on some of those trails that allow bikes now." because he's disabled and he can't bicycle any longer, mm -hmm. but he can do an e-bike. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I say, oh, there, there's a positive element of that. Sure. Um, and you know, the, I think the big confusion has also been that people thought that e-bikes could go everywhere on any trail and they can't, they can only go the places that bicycles are allowed now in the national parks. And so, I don't know. I have well, a little tr trouble with thinking, well, come on, people. We don't need to do any more sedentary activities. Pedal. Let me ask you this. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, I, I hear those people who say their knees are shot or their hips are shot and, and they want to enjoy these places that they enjoyed as a, a younger individual. And um, despite that motor, it's really not motorized, um, but it is motorized. And where, where do you draw the line in terms of uh, a handicap that requires motorized assistance? And um, my, my brother needs a, a motorized uh, scooter to get places because he can't walk far. I'm sure he'd like to see some of these places too. So do you allow, do you allow a, a motorized uh, I mean, it's electric. It's not. It's not a. It's not a gas-powered engine. Right. Where do you draw the line? Yeah, it, that's a really tough one to do. It's the same issue we have with, you know, the only pets you can have on trails in the park are the dogs that have the service, service dogs. dogs. There we yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yet we've got all kinds of people that are getting the service dog vest, even though they really don't need a service dog. They just want to take their pet with them. Yeah. yeah. And, so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it'd be really nice if people <laughs> could just respect why the, you know, rule was made in the first place of allowing people that needed that assistance to be able to see it, to do it. And e-bikes to me are the kind of the same thing. It'd be really nice if people that needed that as a way to see it um, could do it. But people that have the capabilities of pedaling themselves totally should <laughs> not have an e-bike. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a tough tough issue to deal with. And and what's what's particularly concerning about the way um, the Interior Secretary issued his directive for e-bikes is. 
we're going to let the bikes out there and then we're going to conduct public comment period. And so I know some parks are starting, supposedly starting their public comment period now. And here it is almost Thanksgiving or yeah, it's almost Thanksgiving, almost December. Who's out in the park commenting on these types of issues? So, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think I think what we all have to remember is is national parks were not intended, I do not think, to accommodate every single interest and desire out there. Exactly. And, I mean, one of the things I think right now, at least with Glacier, you know, I live right here, so I'm in it all the time. Um, there's been a real push to be able to get more uh, wheelchair accessible trails put mm-hmm. into certain places. Mm-hmm. I am like 150% in favor of that because that's those part, those trails that are being converted to that mm-hmm. are, they're already huge wide trails because so many people do them. So why not? Yeah. And, um, you know. And I think there's some places where those could be installed. I I don't think there's a great problem. I mean, you go to some of these national seashores and, and uh, they've got handicap accessible fishing platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. But I think that's accommodating, not an interest, but more of a need. And that's where I see a little bit of difference with the e-bike issue and so forth. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we've been catching up today with Becky Lomax, uh, the author of Moon USA National Parks, who has been out in the national parks um, working, although I bet she's having more fun than working. Becky, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. We're going to catch up with you again soon. Yeah, thank you. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. And now, a commentary. A National Parks Traveler today, you'll find a story about a proposal to build a commercial spaceport a small handful of miles due west of Cumberland Island National Seashore, which graces one of Georgia's barrier islands. It's a somewhat concerning story when you think that the proponents want a facility that up to 12 times a year would launch rockets not only into space, but over the National Seashore to get there. Rocket launches these days don't often go wrong but when they do, they can be an incredible disaster. Other launch facilities, such as the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and Wallops Island in Virginia, send their rockets up and out over the Atlantic Ocean. If those rockets fail during launch, the debris splashes down in the ocean. 
If a launch from the proposed Camden spaceport fails, however, opponents of the facility fear it could shower flaming fuel down onto the national seashore or, in a worse scenario, have a fully fueled stage of the rocket crash down onto the seashore and explode there, spreading flames and hazardous materials. What isn't known is whether the National Seashore's visitors would have to be moved off the island during those launches. Also not known publicly is who would mount a response to a disaster that falls on Cumberland Island National Seashore and how it would be mounted. How would wildlife, such as the flocks of birds that build rookeries on the National Seashore, be impacted by these launches? What precautions are being taken to protect the seashore from a failed or aborted launch? What will the launches sound like to those trying to enjoy the National Seashore's official wilderness? And will there be night launches that cast a glow down upon the seashore? Unfortunately, those behind Camden Spaceport, the Board of Commissioners for Camden County, Georgia, declined to be interviewed for our story, and their public relations staffer did not respond to written questions after saying he would. The Federal Aviation Administration is expected to release a final environmental impact statement on the spaceport proposal by mid-December. Only when it surfaces will we get answers to safety and procedural questions tied to the proposed spaceport. One of those questions is whether the FAA will reopen the EIS if outside reviewers find areas of concern that have not been adequately addressed. We can only hope that the FAA will be willing to entertain such questions and not rush to judgment on the feasibility and safety of a commercial spaceport that would send rockets being propelled by tens of thousands of pounds of explosive fuel over Cumberland Island National Seashore. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be talking about grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. Until then, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.